This is the Plucked Chicken Podcast. Well, we need to get right to it. This is a mixed bag of things that I have heard this week and wanted to play for you, Pastor Bruss, as well as for all of our listening audience. The first one is a guy who is talking about how he did not go to seminary, but how the church that he's been at for the last 12 years has been his seminary. The second thing that I hope we can get to is a call-in show where Donnie Swaggart, the son of infamous Jimmy Swaggart, has a call-in show, and somebody's going to call and ask about the sign of the cross. And then finally, seeing how we just began Epiphany this past Sunday, I thought we'd take a listen to a guy out of Chicago who preaches on the wise men and them coming to the Christ child and then seeing how he turns it around to a big, crazy mess. So let's get right into it with the preacher talking about the substitute that he used instead of going to seminary. So pumped to be with you today. So excited uh, just to, to get to share some of the things I've learned from God's Word with you. Uh, I want to start by introducing you to someone, uh, someone that stumbled into this place 16 years ago, hungover, smelling like smoke, sitting on the back row. And uh, so it's this guy right here. It's the one to the far left. I wouldn't, I wouldn't trust that guy. Uh, he's a lot of things. He is a lot of things in that moment in life, but one thing he certainly was not was a pastor. In fact, I'll go one more just for fun. There you go. <laughs> if you're gonna if you're gonna ride a motorcycle, wear flip flops. Everybody knows that. <laughs> Everybody knows that. Now, in order to save you, Pastor Bruss, from this, we are not gonna listen to the entirety of this guy's sermon. We're just gonna pick out some some highlights that I wanted to play for you. However, if we did, we would learn a lot about this preacher. So it's very much about the preacher and not about what he preaches. Is that the point? But doesn't this go along with the evangelical shtick that your testimony plays a major role in getting people to come to your church or something like that, but not the proclamation of the gospel necessarily? Is that, is that right? That is correct. And actually, one of the, uh, the bits that he talks about is how he, for the last 12 years, he said he's been in this church for 16 so I assume four years later, he becomes a pastor of this church, or one of, and that's what he says. For the last 12 years, I've just been telling you my story. It's interesting that in my interview for Watermark 12 years ago, they said, why should we hire you? I said, you'd be crazy to. I'm not going to sell you on why you should hire me. I-, I can tell you my story. In fact, all I know to do is to share my story. And you look past, uh, on the, back on the past 12 years, and all I've done is shared my story. That's all I've really done here. Amazing that it's, it's not the story of Christ. It's, it's his story. It's what Christ, I guess, has done for him. But still, in saying it that way, he still takes center stage, doesn't he? Yeah, absolutely. And so you think about just coming into this place, mind blown. We met at a high school at the time, Lake Highlands, and there was so much off in my life, so many addictions, uh, materialism, kind of everything wrong with Dallas and a person, and just wrestling with this idea of who is God. 
And 16 years later, last weekend, I find myself in a green room in a church in Waco with my community group and my family. And we're circled up with our children and we're praying as the congregation is voting, determining if they want me to be their lead pastor or not. And it's like, how did we get here, you know? And someone came up and said, hey, where did you go to seminary? And I welled up with pride. Not to say that I haven't, but to say that I've been to the best seminary that humbly I believe is on the planet Earth. The most incredible education that one could receive over the past 12 years. I've learned from you guys. I've learned from leaders here. I'm so incredibly thankful for you. This is surprising to me as a Lutheran in particular, right? Uh, and, you know, our seminary education is, is nothing to be sneezed at. And, and it really goes back to um, Paul's exhortations to, to Timothy. And I'm going to take a look here at uh, a passage that everybody's very well aware of, 2 Timothy chapter 3. And there Paul uh, says, uh, As for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings. Now, this is the key thing, the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. And so a Lutheran pastor spends, you know, in the olden days, uh, would start at age 14, uh, learning the ancient languages. Today, they typically start in uh, freshman year in college at age 18. Some of them uh, show up already with a little bit of Latin anyway. And they spend a total of eight years studying the scriptures and learning how to use the tools that God has given for, for understanding those scriptures. Uh, and here, uh, what? This is a totally based upon experience and watching uh, other people lead, right? I mean, so what, it, it, really, uh, it, this is a leadership model of pastoral ministry and not a care of the sheep model of pastoral ministry. In other words, applying the word of God to the lives of the people. Sure. And, you know, the first time I heard this, I thought, okay, so again, setting the stage, he's in Dallas. He is getting a call, so to speak, from a church in Waco. And so he's been talking about this wrestling with this call and the question posited to him is a good question. Where did you go to seminary? Where did your formal training take place? And he's going to now talk for the rest of the sermon about how the church that he served for 12 years was his seminary. You know, my first thought was, if I were going in for heart surgery. And I asked the doctor, he came into the, you know, to the to the room there to talk with me. He's wearing the white coat. He's got some pens. He's got a beeper. He's important. And I say, you know, doc, where did you, where did you go to medical school? And he says, you know, I didn't, but I've worked for the last 12 years 
at another hospital as an orderly, <laughs> and I watched all these doctors perform oh, open heart surgery. They all carried beepers like me. <laughs> they have some pens like me, and I got this white coat, you know, on Amazon. Why is there such a disdain for formal education within the American evangelical? And I'm not even talking about old-school American evangelical. I'm talking about new-school, new-generation American evangelical has a disdain for formal education. That's a perfect segue to what I was going to—you sort of provided the bridge from what I just said to what I will now say, right? So Paul exhorts Timothy to to know the scriptures very well. Why? Because it's those that are profitable for reproof, for correction, for training in all righteousness, and so on. Okay. So if 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 a doc if a pastor is to do his job properly, he's always pointing people to the scriptures, and so he needs that education. Now listen listen to what Paul goes on to say in chapter four. The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. Uh, But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth, the truth, and wander into myths. So Paul is prophesying our day. He's probably prophesying the entire history of the Christian church, but it's come to roost in a really viral way here in in contemporary America. Think about what Paul juxtaposes here, right? The two things that are juxtaposed are the truth and myth. The truth is the truth of God's holy word. The myth, mythoi in Greek, are just, they're just stories. Uh, I want to hear a story. I don't want to hear the truth. And and of course, you get a dramatic situation like this, where the guy was a druggie and you know, hopped up on whatever, uh, riding around in his motorcycle and flip flops, and uh, he's been converted. That's a great mythos, isn't it? Yeah, obviously he's made a career out of that mythos, right? And they're going to hate to see him go because they like hearing the mythos. They love the mythos. Yeah, apparently. Well, and as you said, uh, he he spends much of the sermon talking about how he just told them his story for 12 years. Right. Yeah. It has been an unbelievable privilege to serve in a number of roles here, last of which is the campus pastor of this place. As I look out there, I just see people that I love and I care, people that are, are near to my heart. And so this is the seminary that I've been to, and so that's what I want to share with you today is nine things I've learned while serving Jesus here at Watermark. Nine things I've learned while serving Jesus here at Watermark. Certainly not an exhaustive list, but I want you to know that we're going to miss this church greatly. Tremendously. In so many ways, it has felt like the past several weeks, like our hearts are being ripped out. I, as the leader of our family, are ripping our hearts away from this place. But before I go, I want to teach you the lessons I've learned over the past 12 years that you don't have to come on staff for 12 years to learn these lessons. All you need to do for the next few minutes is open your heart and mind. I pray that you would write them down, both the points, the ideas, as well as the corresponding uh, scriptures that go with them. I want you to know that, that Todd is about to do a series that I'm really excited about for you guys to hear that will expound on many of these ideas, a series called How He Built This. But today, I want to share with you the things that I've learned over the last 12 years being here on staff. Some of them are going to be wisdom principles. Some of them are going to be in command form. There'll be nine of them, and the first one is this. Number one. Okay, this is where I cut it. 
because it doesn't make any difference. Who cares? And it's really important. Now, I want you, you've not heard this. I've heard it about a half a dozen times. I'm sorry for that. <laughs> you torture yourself. <laughs> I do, I do. So I have a hard time sleeping. So, uh, so when I wake up in the middle of the night, I, I listen to uh, bad sermons in hopes that they will put me back to sleep. But uh, they don't. They just get me. Aggravate you. Yeah, right. Get me enraged. Okay, it's really important. I want to see if you can put this together. The name of the church, i.e. seminary, is called Watermark. And how many letters are in Watermark? Oh, there are nine letters in Watermark. And he's learned nine things at this seminary. And is it? does he do it in acrostics? Well, Pastor Russ, you, you are a quick one. Is that right? <laughs> so the nine things he, he has learned line up nicely with the nine letters in Watermark. And, Perfectly. Yeah. And map over the scriptures just... Well, actually, the scriptures simply become a, a proof text to, you know, I mean, what's ruling the day is the acrostic. Not the not the scriptures. No. Yeah, right, right. No. Right. And it's convenient. And uh, this is so typical of evangelical preaching is the five points or the nine points or the ten points. And every, you know, you, you put these points into practice and your life is going to turn around. This is like a pep talk. But when you don't have law and gospel and you don't understand that then part of the mythos is the acrostic. It's the way to uh, hopefully people will remember what you talked about. It's almost like gematria, right, among the Jews, that sort of Kabbalistic sure. uh, secret. Mysticism. I yeah, mean, Jewish mysticism. mysticism. Uh, right, but a mysticism attached to the name of the church plucked out of the air, which has absolutely, frankly, uh, no significance. I mean, what? Where do we hear about watermarks in the scriptures? Can you can you help me out with this? No. Did, did, <laughs> the, the lead pastor used to be like a, a a paper executive or something like that. I have no idea. But that's just such a strange name. Now, even though I wanted to cut out all of the nine things that he's learned, because again, they make no difference. If the church was called, say, Skidmark. Yes, Skidmark. <laughs> so that would be eight things that I learned at seminary. It doesn't matter because the word now, the title of the church or what have you, the name of the church is driving it. So it doesn't matter. But I did want to include a couple things that he is going to say. So we're going to jump forward in the sermon just a little bit, if you can call this a sermon, or as you said earlier, just a, just a pep talk. I'm going to jump ahead and just listen. Let's just listen to a couple of them. Good. The next thing that I've learned while serving Jesus here at Watermark is that the Bible is our blueprint. Number three, the Bible is our blueprint. See, whatever God wants to build in your life and in this church, the instructions are right here. When I, I came to Lake Highlands, when I came to Watermark, we met at a high school in Lake Highlands at the time. I heard Todd stand up here and courageously say, hey guys, we're just going to do what this book says. No matter how difficult it is, no matter what the world says, no matter the accusations they bring against us, we're just going to do what this book says. And, and as someone who has called themselves a Christian my entire life, I never really took time to know what it says. But it's really our blueprint like it kind of defines what we should do and gives our lives boundaries in the instruction that it presents. 
And so the first thing that I did with my staff there in Waco, because people, they, they say things, I think, to encourage you. I was like, man, you're going to go there. That church is going to blow up. It's going to grow. It's going to be big. And I just told them, I said, hey, I want you to know, I don't care if we're ever big. The crosshairs for me, the goal is not to be big. It's to be biblical. And the reason I say that is because I'm a parrot. I just repeat what I hear great leaders say. And the reason that I repeat what I hear a great leader says is because he's repeating what he's heard a greater leader say. Or at least what his word says. And so we can just repeat that and go on and on. As we've said many times, there is no watermark way. There's God's way as it's revealed through his word. Because 2 Timothy 3 verse 16 says, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We're going to be firm where the Bible is firm and flexible where it is flexible. Is that not just this, I don't know, this scrambled egg? I mean, in one respect, it's we're going to be biblical, but we both know, and everybody who listens to our podcast knows, uh, when it comes to baptism, they don't believe what the Bible says about baptism. They don't believe what the Bible says about the Lord's Supper. They don't clearly don't believe what the Bible says in regard to studying to show thyself approved. Sure. But yet at the same time, he's going to discuss how he's just parroting what other great leaders said. Yeah, that's that's very scrambled, isn't it? Sh- shouldn't it be parroting what the Word of God says? What the Scriptures say and the, and the Scriptures teaching. It's interesting to me the way that he puts this. It's what we are going to do. We are going to do what the Word of God instructs us to do. And, I mean, like a Lutheran would think about this in this way. We are going to proclaim what the Word of God proclaims. That's a different thing, isn't it? There's a kind of law, not a kind of, there's a huge law orientation toward what he is saying here. Anytime he says that the Bible is the blueprint, you know, this reminds me of the old Sunday school, an acrostic, uh, where Bible stands for basic instructions before leaving earth. I never heard that one. <laughs> so, but he said instructions. Not only did he say blueprint, but he talked about the instructions are here. This is all a law-based system. And you, you hear it in their preaching uh, Sunday in and Sunday out, right? The five points to being a better parent and, and, and whatever else. It's very foreign to a Lutheran ear. The eighth thing I learned while serving Christ at Watermark is that we reach the next 100. We live to reach the next 100. I must have heard Todd say it a hundred times, the most important people of this church are the next 100. The most important people of this church are are those that haven't gotten here yet. The next 100 to walk through the door. And then I came on staff and I sat with the angry, you know, uh, members of the body that said, wait a minute, what about us? What about equipping the saints? Are we not important? And then you begin to read the scripture and it says, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. And then you turn to Acts 2 verse 47 and you see that God was adding to their numbers daily those who were being saved. And the church was growing and the church was being strengthened. That if we're to be about Jesus, then we're about what Jesus is about, which is about reaching the lost. That's what we care about. We're looking to those that don't know him and we're inviting them in. And that's a high priority to all of us. Now, didn't he just say that he, if he goes to this church, 
in Waco that he doesn't care if it grows or not. Didn't he just get through saying he that? He just said that. And now it's the next 100 and leave leave behind the sheep. Now, I mean, the scriptures do talk this way. There's no question about the missionary impulse of the church. There is absolutely no question about that. But to say that there should be no focus on the flock strikes me as, well, I mean, the whole paradigm is bigger, better, so on and so forth. With that mentality, I'm sure all of their shut-ins, you think, are probably cared for. and Super well taken care of. Right. Yeah, and they probably instruct the children, take, you know, the pastors, the, the lead pastor, as they call them, probably spends a lot of time teaching the children the faith. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> this is total Willow Creek model. What he just said, even quoting those two verses, those verses are more important than any other verses when it comes to the Willow Creek model that was then promulgated throughout all of America. And then, of course, we've exported that all over the world. This has got Willow Creek's fingerprints all over it. Absolutely. And, you know, doesn't Paul talk about milk and meat? Uh, there is, uh, well, I mean, uh, so you've got that, you've got Ephesians chapter four, uh, where we grow into maturity as the body of Christ. This emphasis on the next 100, it's not, it's not paradigmatically Christian. And nor does it fit with all of church history. I mean, sure, you could look at the, uh, the revivals, the, the second great awakening and see that there was an emphasis upon the lost, but up until then, I guess my thought process is, if all you're doing is being concerned about the seeker, as the Willow Creek model put it, then you really don't have to go to seminary. And if you're a believer that your testimony is on par with Holy Scripture, then for crying out loud, why would you need any sort of formal education? Why would you need to study the languages? Why would you need to spend time in the Scriptures? Why? Because all you're focused on is the next 100, which is... Getting them in the door. Getting them in the door, getting their fanny in a seat, and hopefully putting an offering plate in front of them so that they can give. Because this type of church ministry, it is the most expensive type of church ministry. When you're talking about lights and cameras and smoke machines and uh, instrumentalists and tons and tons of personnel to pull this off much less a design team and a creative team to try to uh, make these things titillating and exciting. It makes the Evangelical Lutheran Church seem positively primitive when you put it that way, right? No doubt. And, and, and actually, I think that's an interesting observation, only because the charge against liturgical churches is that they are not the primitive Christian church, even though the primitive Christian church was liturgical, and that the way they're doing it in these Willow Creek settings is actually just kind of, it's, it's basically taking the living room worship of early Christians, which they suppose to have happened, and just making it bigger. They're, instead of 50 people in your living room, you got 5,000, so you have to have a bigger building, and you may as well have lights and smoke and all that sort of stuff. And think about what's at the center of evangelical Lutheran worship. It is the key things that the Lord wants to give to his church. It's the forgiveness of sins in Christ delivered through the absolution, delivered through the sacrament of the altar, delivered through the baptismal font. Those things are the prominent key things. It's very simple. 
All right, so we've listened to two of his points, and now let's get to, I believe, his conclusion. And so I want you to know, I've not been to seminary when most people think of, or what most people think of seminary. But I've been here for 12 years. And what I've learned is, number one, to walk in the light, to avail yourself to the work of God, that the Bible is our blueprint, that every conflict is an opportunity to reject gossip, to minister through people, not to people, that authentic community is forged, not found, that we're to reach the next 100, and that we should keep worshiping. So thankful for you people. I'm so thankful for this place. In the seminary I've been to, it's Watermark. That's where I've been. Pastor Kearns, I got a question for you. Wow. What would you expect a Lutheran seminary grad to respond to a question brought to him at, uh, at upon graduation? What are the things that you take away from your seminary education? Give me, you know, a handful of points. Having come from the evangelical world to the Lutheran world, I have been quite amazed at really to a man. How many times a Lutheran pastor will reference what he learned in seminary? That is really shocking to me because I've got like a couple notes and maybe a book or two from my seminary experience. But to answer your question, I would say that my seminary experience helped me tremendously to learn how to read a book. Uh, but I would say the teaching and the training in the scriptures. You know, I'm thinking about this on my, on my own, right? What, what, have, what did I walk away with seminary with? Probably fundamentally, uh, the, the most important thing that a pastor could walk away from his seminary education with is knowing how to divide the word of truth properly. Knowing what is law, knowing what is gospel, knowing who needs to hear the law and who needs to hear the gospel. This is the critical fundamental thing that that any pastor needs to know. To piggyback on that, Luther would agree with you because he's the one who says that if anybody can learn this distinction made between law and gospel, you put them into the front of the class. You you go ahead and give them a doctorate. Give them a doctor of theology. They become a doctor of theology. I would also say uh, that the Lutheran pastor is trained so to view the world and his ministry through God's word that he, and of course you have to grow into this as you, as you practice, uh, practice the ministry, that you put aside all of the siren songs of the world. In other words, this guy has made the claim that he doesn't care if his new church grows. But I can tell, I can guarantee you, if he goes there and there's not the next 100 every year, whatever the whatever he needs to have to grow this thing. He's, he's going gonna, back to Watermark. He's going to shift gears. But a Lutheran pastor 
in the face of such issues, if he is properly preaching the word of God and if he is properly administering the sacraments, guess what a Lutheran pastor is going to do? He's going to hold the course even if his congregation goes from 100 to 50. You know, this is another sort of major teaching. And of course, this is a teaching of the scriptures that this guy seems to be completely unaware of, right? He says he's going to be satisfied if nothing happens at this place in Waco, but he is not a, a theologian of the Old Testament that is aware of the faithful remnant and that the church uh, of the, I mean, are there 7,000 faithful in all of Israel, right, uh, is this question. Um, this is the way of the, of, the, of the church. Many are called, but few are chosen. Well, and on top of that, you think about how when Isaiah was called, he was told explicitly, nobody's going to listen to you. Their eyes are going to be blinded and their ears are going to be dull. And Isaiah asked the question, okay, how long is that going to last? <laughs> okay, I can do that for a little while, you know. But then he finds out, no, this is, this is going to be the course of your ministry. Man, if guys were told that today in seminary, in the big, in the places preparing guys to serve the big boxes, you're saying? Sure. Yeah, okay. Uh, you know, it's going to dwindle, and uh, and on top of that, you're going to be uh, saddled with so much debt because of these astronomical buildings, and these huge budgets, and the fact that you can't do church without these dozens and dozens of people. I don't know. I was looking at some church. I can't even remember where it was or what it was called, but I was looking at their staff. I mean, it was page after page after page. I do think they had a guy who sharpens pencils. I mean, it just went on and on and on. And you think about the millions of dollars that go to support these men, women, families, what have you. Sharpening pencils. Sharpening pencils. Or or whatever the case might be. Yeah. I'm just trying to think of other uh, things that you walk away from uh, a seminary training with. I I think one of the other things um, is— is an awareness that the really that the road and, and I, I'm trying to think of how to say this properly um, that the road to heaven is is a narrow way in, in this in this sense that we are constantly particularly once you've been baptized into Christ's death and resurrection there's a target on your back and it's the devil who's after you it's the world that's uh, trying to strip you away from Christ, and it's your own flesh which can't bear to be drowned daily uh, in in repentance. And so, what that means is that the flock you have needs a lot of attention. You can't ignore them. You can't say, "All right, we're going to be done with this because we're concentrating on the next one hundred." This the, these are the things that I would say that a Lutheran would walk away from seminary with, not a nine point model that maps nicely over the, you know, acronym or acrostic. Yeah. Just so our listeners know, the way that it worked out was when he reviewed all of the nine things, obviously there's screens there and and people clearly see that the acrostic is watermark. And so then he gets very somber and says, you know, this is the this is the seminary that I've been to. And, uh, you know, there's some scattering applause. And then I guess everybody's like, yeah, we agree. This is a great seminary, you know, and uh, you don't need to go to seminary. And to a certain degree, some of the applause was to the fact that this is most likely his last time in the pulpit until he's invited back to, to be a guest speaker or what have you. I guess the thought that I had was, 
is everybody agreeing with him now? And that if somebody, 20 years from now, they're at a church, and they're asking the new guy, where did you go to seminary? And he says, I went to the church that I've served at for the last however many years has been my seminary. And he says the name of that church, then he's supposed to go, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, well, that's cool. Is everybody agreeing that we don't need seminary now? This crowd is. I, I mean, I think psychologically it's really interesting the way that, that he's pulling this one off. He is preaching, he, totally preaching to the choir, isn't he? And all the people in the pews can walk away thinking is, we did a damn good job. So there's self-congratulatory, circular thinking about what a wonderful thing Watermark is. Yeah, this is the type of guys that we produce at our church. Uh, this is a wonderful church. And as he said, it's the best seminary in the world. Do you think that he could open up John chapter 1 and start reading it in Greek? I mean, I'm just curious about this. Do you think? No. Genesis chapter 1 no. in Hebrew? No, no. <laughs> Can we just talk about why that's a problem? If you if you cannot read the scriptures in the language in which they were written, or at least have enough Hebrew and Greek to, to make your way through a commentary, you are going to be making up your own theology, snapping at uh, one English word or another, which may or may not be a proper translation of the Greek and Hebrew text, and turning that into, you know, I, I had a seminary professor who used to talk about inverted triangles, uh, where you take an incorrect point based upon a shallow exegesis and then build a whole, a whole uh, superstructure on top of it. And that's a real danger to the people of God. Yeah, th when this guy looks at a commentary, he's not necessarily looking at words and meanings and uh, a greater sense of the context or a greater sense of understanding of the human writer, he's looking for things that make him look clever. He's not looking for clarity in the scriptures. He's looking for the thing that, yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a really interesting. <clears throat> Whereas somebody who is working with a Greek and Hebrew text is, um, I mean, m m many of the intertextual connections in the in the scriptures can't even be you you'd never get them from english you'd never get them from english well and one of the things that i learned in seminary was you can't make yourself look clever and jesus look wonderful at the same time oh i love that that's great <laughs> that is a good statement all right, so reaching our hand yet again into the mixed bag, we are going to pull out something I heard this past week on, I don't know, I think it's called Sun Life Broadcasting Network. It's Donnie Swaggart, who is sitting with a group of other, I assume, pastors. I'm not exactly sure, but uh, this is what someone called in to ask, and this was their response. I've been born again for over 30 years. I was raised Catholic. I still, from time to time, make the sign of the cross. Is that wrong? Uh, Jim? Uh, it would be wrong for me, and I don't know whether it is for him or not. That's something he's going to have to work out with the Lord. But uh, the sign of the cross doesn't do anything but just make a sign. And they, they make a big deal out of it in the Roman Catholic Church. But the sad thing is, is they still have Jesus on the cross. And they still sacrifice him every time they do a mass around the world. And that's written that way in their catechism, which I have, by the way, and have read it from cover to cover. 
So no, I would not do the sign of the cross. But what does it represent? The crucifixion of Christ. That's what it represents. And they still got him there on the, I mean, the crucifix. Is, they still, and they, does, it, does it also represent the four stations? Uh, maybe. Okay. I, you know, I, I don't know. It, it is, uh, I, I will not use that because I'm not Catholic. I concur with Jim, someone that was raised, even though you're saved and born again, and you do it at a time. I think a lot of times it's probably done out of habit. Habit probably is. And, it's a habit uh, you need to break. And, and, and now if you're putting <clears throat> faith in do, doing that, well, that's wrong. It's false. So uh, my, the answer is very simple. Don't do it. Wow. <laughs> this one blows me away. Uh, so, so this this is truly, uh, I mean, we, so we go from like arrogant ignorance in the previous one to an ignorance that is so great that they're, that they don't even recognize their own ignorance. Right. Okay. And, and, and what's even worse is this one guy said, this was not Donnie Swaggart, but one of the guys said, I have the Catholic catechism and I have Radat Kava to Kava. And he's going to give away the fact here in just a moment that he did not. Is that right? So okay, that'll be interesting to hear to hear what he's going to give away. But but here here's something that needs to be said. I mean, several things that need to be said. Number one, Saint Paul clearly says on several occasions, "I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified." There's you a, mean Jesus on the cross? Jesus crucified? on the cross oh. crucified. Okay. Oh. Number two. I mean, this whole thing about taking Jesus off the cross is just craziness. Number two, Paul talks in Galatians, right? He says, pro hois ophthalmois, pro grafe Christos estau romenos. Okay, before whose eyes Christ was, and the word here is pro grafe, uh, depicted as crucified. Now, we have lost, and, and uh, anybody who's familiar with with the papyrus dumps of Egypt knows this. We have lost a great deal of literature, even of graphic art from the past. Some of that is recoverable inside of these papyrus dumps. But here's the fascinating thing. Greek icons, okay, and I just, uh, this is maybe just way too much, but it's, it's fascinating. Greek icons are based upon this tradition where a, a painter uh, will make a, an image of a person who's alive. So it's actually an image of the live person. And that gets reproduced and spread throughout the, the whole world. We've got examples of this. I do believe that when Paul says, pro egrafe estau romenos, depicted, drawn, crucified before your eyes, that he is actually referring to a graphic depiction in that church that all of the congregation knew about and could look at even when he when it's being read in the congregation exactly number three they're going to point to the prohibition against images embedded within the first commandment right you shall have no other gods before me and then it goes on to say um you know you shall not make any graven images of anything under the earth and above the earth blah 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 okay now, what are you not supposed to do? That The prohibition isn't against the graven image. It's against worshiping the graven image. This is penned prior to Moses putting the serpent on the stake in the wilderness. 
to which the people were to look for their salvation. I was just thinking that. They are to look at that, and then Jesus turns around and says, that is me. Exactly, in look, John three fourteen. Look at me on the cross. Just as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And then it was, uh, I believe, Hezekiah, if I'm not mistaken, in the days of Hezekiah, who actually destroyed that because the people were doing what you just got through saying. They were worshiping that. Right, right, good. So, the point is this, that th- that these things, in sort of in and of themselves, are are neutrals, okay? Neither commanded nor forbidden by the scriptures, um, even if the scriptures mention them. Now, the Lutheran attitude to adiaphora, to these things that are indifferent, is that if they proclaim the faith and can be used to teach the faith, then use them. The moment they become idolatrous, take them away. The Catholics making the sign of the Holy Cross is... (laughs) Well, look, I can't get into anybody's head, okay? But Catholicism does not teach that making the sign of the Holy Cross over yourself, blessing yourself with the sign of the Holy Cross, is a merit. No. Why do you do it, Pastor Kearns? It's a remembrance of my baptism. Because at your baptism, the priest or the pastor in a Lutheran church says, Receive the sign of the Holy Cross both upon the forehead and upon the breast to mark you as one redeemed by Christ the crucified. What are you doing when you when you make the sign of the Holy Cross? You are saying, God has made me his child through the blood of Christ. <laughs> and it's really nice to do that when you're looking at a crucifix. And on top of that, most Roman Catholics believe what you just said. And moreover, making the sign of the Holy Cross upon oneself, it is a confession of faith. It is, I believe in this triune God. Do I understand him completely? No, it's a mystery. But I believe God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It is a confession of faith. It's a remembrance of one's baptism. And, and it could be, it could be other things. I guess the problem that I had with this is this, this mixing of bad Roman Catholic theology i.e. the sacrifice they're going to talk about here, I believe, so, yeah, right. the so altar. They, they connect that to the crucifix and the making of the sign of the Holy right. Cross. Right, so yeah. everything, you know, everything is bad if it comes from the Roman Catholic Church. Now, if they were to take this to its logical conclusion, they would have to say that meeting for church services is bad. They would have to say the that, Bible that is bad. The Bible is bad, the <laughs> preaching is bad, right? You know, so so this is, this is just, um, I'm sorry. To me, this sounds like back-ass words, Appalachian prejudice against Catholics and anything that's Catholic. He's got just a few more seconds here. So Donnie's already jumped in here and said, uh, well, first he says, what's it mean? Does it mean four stations? You know, I don't even know what four stations is, you know. (laughs) So even though the guy says that he's read the Catholic Catechism, Pastor Bruss, you have read it, and you actually have a copy of it in your hands. Can you tell us what it says regarding the sign of the cross? I sure can. I'm reading from paragraph 2157, 2157. And this is what the Catholic Catechism says, and a Lutheran would agree with what is written here. The Christian begins his day, his prayers, and his activities with the sign of the cross in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The baptized person dedicates the day to the glory of God 
and calls on the Savior's grace, which lets him act in the Spirit as a child of the Father. The sign of the cross strengthens us in temptations and difficulties. So that's actually right under a paragraph on baptism, so that in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, it's recalling that. Um, and basically, I mean, a, a Lutheran would maybe take it a step further and say that it is a preaching to oneself that one is taught by habit, uh, preaching to oneself that one is a child of God. Well, he, he didn't he say that it's a habit and it's a somebody said in the, the panel there that it's a habit that somebody needs to break. He did. Yes. Right. Uh, it, that, that would be like uh, stopping to tell yourself Jesus has died for my sins. Well, if I'm not mistaken, they're going to ask the question, what exactly does it mean? If you forget to do it, you're not going to hell, you know. And uh, But you need to ask the Holy Spirit to help you uh, to get that out of your life. And uh, you don't want any uh, lingering uh, effects of a false religion hanging on into your in your life. So when this first started, the guy said that he needs that the guy asking the question needs to work it out with Jesus. Donnie here tells the person asking the question, you need to work with the Holy Spirit. I find that so interesting. I need to go to Jesus and to the Holy Spirit and ask them if I should get saying in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit out of my life. That is so bizarre. Yes. But again, did you see how... It's the lumping in of that which is true, right, and salutary in with something that we know that the Roman Catholics are off base on. So because they're off base over here, then everything that they touch is contaminated. Obviously, he doesn't know anything about the Reformation and that the Reformation was trying to get rid of those things that were off base to correct them. And that Luther says, when you wake up in the morning, cross yourself with the sign of the Holy Cross and say, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, the first reformer. And it's preserved in the in the first Reformation church that there is, the Evangelical Lutheran Church. But Dr. Gray, uh, uh, I have a question. I wonder why they're encouraged to do that. Because, you know, when they go into the Catholic Church, they'll kneel and then do the sign of the cross. They'll do that when they, they'll do that when they sit down to eat a meal. Mm-hmm. So it's, to, to them, it's a powerful thing. So, so, so there's something they're teaching. I, I'm not sure what it uh, is. It's an acknowledgment of Christ's death on the cross. But it also, when they do it in public, it identifies them as a Catholic. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's, a, it's something that they do. Uh, and they encourage their parishioners to do because uh, they, if they had their way, every every person in the world would be giving the sign of the cross. Mm-hmm. Because according to the Pope, this Pope and the last Pope, uh, in speeches that I heard, you're, they're, they're, the only true Christians are Catholic Christians. You can't go to heaven unless you are a Catholic, unless you are Roman Catholic, uh, and you're you know you're outside of grace and mm-hmm. uh, you're outside of the covenant. We don't believe that. We will stand against that 100%. So, um, you know, you just, you just don't need to be doing stuff like that. You, you, just, you just don't need to be doing stuff like that. They make it out to be this vast conspiracy, oh, yeah. don't they? Yeah. You know, like, oh, oh, I see a Catholic over. Oh, that's a secret sign. It's like the secret handshake for the Masons or something like and if this. And if he could have his way. 
everybody would be ma- yeah if we could have our way everybody would be making the sign of the cross correct uh, acknowledging that they are baptized believers in Christ into his death and resurrection and you know I thought it was just fascinating that that he gave the actual reason why they make the sign of the cross it recalls the death of Jesus yeah but he makes as it as if out, it's a bad thing right a bad thing I, I find it very interesting that you said you know the first thing in the grab bag was about a willful ignorance and then here it is just sheer ignorance it's ignorance that is so ignorant it doesn't know it's ignorant well I would love to say that we're going to move out of the ignorant realm, (laughs) (laughs) but I've got one more sermon that I've heard this week, and as I said at the outset, it has to do with the wise men coming to the Christ child. Now, I might give this guy a little bit of a pass, because yes, when you read it in the scriptures, and when you sing your Christmas carols, and when you um, see Christmas cards and nativity sets, it does appear that the wise men show up at the manger. Now, clearly, they did not. It was sometime later, as you've said uh, recently, I believe in one of your sermons, uh, that Joseph and Mary, they go back to Nazareth after the purification of Mary, But then during some period of time, they make their way back to Bethlehem. Obviously, Joseph was surrounded by his family while he was there. An opportunity comes along. An invitation is made. Something happens that brings them back to Bethlehem. The Holy Family is living in Bethlehem for a certain period of time. Uh, We know later that it's two years and younger that Herod wants to kill all of the the little baby boys. So we're working with that time frame. Clearly, the wise men did not show up at the manger. Joseph and Mary were set up in a house, no doubt humble home. But this preacher is going to talk about that. I'm going to give him a pass on that. That's not really my, my biggest concern. So, But I think it's interesting because the way that this guy preaches his sermon, you can tell he didn't go to seminary either. Welcome to another inspirational message by Pastor Kent Muncy, lead pastor of City Church Chicago. For more information about Pastor Kent and City Church, please visit us online at citychurchchicago.com. Like a Holy Ghost party. Turn to your neighbor and say, because a Holy Ghost party don't stop. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Here we go. Uh, just keep playing. Matthew chapter 2, um, verse 1, it says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, everyone say, behold. Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him turn to somebody near you and just encourage them today say wise men worship wise men worship when Herod the king heard these things he was troubled somebody turn to your neighbor and say troubled why why don't we do that so (laughs) corny it's really popular I hear it 
over and over and over. It's so interesting to me how the American evangelical is so repulsed by liturgy, but yet stuff like this proves that the American evangelical is probably more liturgical in an unorthodox way. Mm But there is a response, there is someone speaking, there is, you know, repeat this. It, it is really quite fascinating to, to hear it so often. The whole thing sounds like a Saturday Night Live skit where, you know, they've got like Marvin Gaye putting on the moves on some woman, right? You know, <laughs> I mean, this is what it sounds like to me. He's, you know, getting people into the groove. And all Jerusalem with them. If you go to verse 8, it says, And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back a word to me that I may come and worship him also. Verse 9. When they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them, till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. They saw the young child with Mary his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. The star heralding birth of Jesus that's mentioned here in Matthew 2 is prophesied about in Numbers 24, 17, and Isaiah chapter 60, verse 3. It's not just um, prophetic but it's also um, a part uh, of our history. Uh, Historically, this supernatural event has been explained in three ways. A major comet, a tailed comet observed by the Chinese for over 70 days in 5 BC could have been the actual star Uh, that led these wise men to Bethlehem. Another explanation is a a planetary conjunction or sequence of conjunctions. A planetary conjunction occurs when two or more major planets appear to stand very close to each other, as Jupiter and Saturn did three times in 7 B.C., It also could be explained as a supernova. A supernova occurs when a star explodes with great violence and becomes extremely brilliant, perhaps a hundred million times as bright as the sun for a short time before sinking back, usually into insignificance. Although no such stars have been observed within our own galaxy since 16... they would be very spectacular and could easily dominate the night sky. Can somebody turn to your neighbor 
and say, who cares? <laughs> <laughs> so what is this I, well it sounds like he's reading somebody's blog doesn't it uh it, like some junior high schooler who's like yeah there must have been something going on there right but even in in this blog thing you know if he's i mean clearly he's got the information i mean he's googled this what have you right, right. this he is didn't. a google search right no right, question right so and, and and i guess that's okay i think we all know that what was seen in the night sky was a miracle. It didn't operate like any of the things that he's talking about. It had a specific purpose, but as was preached here this past Sunday... Right, as you, as you said, right? It disappears after it gets them to Jerusalem, and then and then they go to Bethlehem at the behest of the Word of God, and it reappears. And that's the point. The star was a minor player in this unfolding of the Christ child being born for the Gentiles. It is, as you just said, the Word of God took center stage in that unfolding narrative. Yeah. You know, would you, would you also add that if it were any of these things that he's talked about, these are magi. These are dudes that spend their nights on their back in the desert in Arabia looking at the stars. Oh, you clearly didn't see the movie. No, they don't do it that way. They have a pool, and they pour water in it, and they just look inside the pool as a reflection. Well, okay, that's, well. And this is why everything's backwards. (laughs) (laughs) They were actually supposed to be headed to the east. (laughs) But they came, they came west. No, it's your other left. (laughs) We here at City Church believe uh, in the inherency of scripture. I mean, do we do we dog him about that there? The inherency. The of inherency. Scripture, it, yeah. It's been inherited, I guess. Inher- inher- well, or it's inherent. Uh, you know, what is he, right? It, well, okay. So this is, again, ignorance. We believe um, in the authority of God's word. And we believe that this supernatural phenomenon this is very interesting. He just gave us a blog post, basically, with every rationalistic explanation for how this star appeared, right? It's a, a comet that was observed by the Chinese or a supernova, blah, 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 blah. And now he's calling it supernatural. Uh, man, get your story straight. Well, that's all he had to say at the very beginning if he would have just said this was supernatural. But see, I don't know. Does it appeal to something, this seeker, this very rational? Do you think it's that calculated or do you think this is what it is? It's it's this day he's got to preach on this text and he's like, man, this star, I don't get it. I'm going to Google it, pulls off this blog post and it's filler, right? I mean, this guy is not, uh, uh, he doesn't know where he's going. You can tell uh, with the hesitations that he has. And so I, I'm just wondering if he's like, man, I got to do this for 50 minutes. Uh, I'm going to find something online. Not only caused wise men and kings and rulers to respond to this supernatural uh, scientific event by following this star. (laughs) Which one is it? Supernatural scientific. I mean, oh, poor guy. Look to your your neighbor and say, are we confused? (laughs) Oh, oh, I feel bad for him, kind of. 
So he's just now throwing things against the wall. It's scientific, you know, or, or whatever you want it to be. Could be. Uh, that could be the purpose. Um, but w- we believe that all of human history has been responding uh, to the supernatural revelation of Jesus Christ ever since. Um, but let's be honest. Uh, it would have had to have been disappointing, right? For the wise men to experience this supernatural phenomenon in the sky, uh, to experience this sign and to, to leave everything that they knew and familiar with um, and pursue this phenomenon. Uh, but that's exactly what they did. Now, I think he's doing a little psychoanalysis of the wise men, suggesting that when they did see the star, and of course, as you've mentioned before, and as was mentioned this past Sunday, most likely this came about through Daniel and his influence upon the Magi when the Babylonian captivity took place. He's saying that they had some difficulty in wanting to follow after it. How does he know? I have no clue. I mean, did you hear that? Yeah, that, what, that, I don't know what the point is. Actually, I really don't know what, what he's doing with well, this. Well, okay, I'm going to tell you. What he's going to do is he is going to take this narrative, which is descriptive, and he is going to turn it into a prescriptive text and thus make it about you. Gotcha. But it would have had to been, right, disappointing to follow it as a king, you know, as royalty, you know, as, um, as people, I'm sure, that are, are extremely, um, you know, extremely productive and successful uh, to leave where they are, travel a long distance, and end up in a stable. Now, we know that at, as they draw near to the star, they went to the palace. Everyone say the palace. What is the point of that? I think it's uh, no different from when you or I say, uh, or, you know, it almost gives you just a second to figure out what you're going to say next. Right. (laughs) And they went to the palace probably because they thought that's where the king of kings, that's where the the Messiah, the Savior, the prophesied one, uh, the one that the star was pointing to would be. But he wasn't in the palace. He wasn't in the assumed place. He wasn't in... Right. The, you know, the the place that everyone would have obviously looked for him to be the king of the Jews, but rather uh, he was in a stable. I want to ask you a question. Have you ever followed a star and ended up in a stable? What's a you, Pastor? But I. It's never happened to me, but I'm sure it's happened to you. I see. You got more street cred than me. I I, I get where he's going with this. Right. This is like hopes up, hopes dashed. So this is a sermon about hopes up, hopes dashed, right? Sure. Yeah. He is turning this wonderful story of what this means to the Gentiles. And really, as we know, I mean, this is um, this is like Revelation, uh, I believe, 11 or 12, like um, explained. Revelation, I, I, what is it, 11 or 12 off the top of your head? Yeah, I, think it's, it's, I think it's 12 verses 1 through 6. Let me read it. Yeah, please. 
And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in the heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who's to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she was, uh, where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now, this is a very, very graphic scene that, that St. John is writing here. I mean, this, this, the head of this dragon, it, it is between this woman's legs, and his mouth is open so that when this baby crowns, he'll bite into the skull and rip it out of Mary's womb and gobble it down like a snake with an egg. So this gives us insight into who really was behind what Herod was plotting to do in destroying the Christ child. And you can go back even, you know, you could use the exact same Revelation 12 to, uh, you know, even talk about Pharaoh. I mean, who was behind when Pharaoh wanted to throw all the little baby boys, um, the Hebrew baby boys, into the Nile River? Well, the, the devil was behind all of this. This was the, the, uh, the red dragon. So we're not getting any of that. I mean, that uh, please, nobody wants Bible you know, they want the question posited to them during the sermon time, have you ever followed a star and it's led you to a measly stable? Right, because this is the pep talk. Sermon is pep talk. Right, and and we've already established the fact that the wise men didn't go to the stable. I get it. I'm not going to argue that, um, that it wasn't uh, a humble accommodations. I would agree with the pastor a little bit earlier on when he's like, look, they go to the palace, and you would expect him to be in the palace, but he's not in the palace. Can everybody say palace? <laughs> you got to turn to your neighbor and say palace. Have you ever followed a dream and ended up in a disaster? <laughs> now, that, that, that has happened. <laughs> All right, so so he had to change, you know, following the star to a stable. No, that's not happening. That sounds so stupid. So now we've got to change it to following a dream and ended up in a disaster. Disaster, not a disappointment, Have you ever believed in something so much that you gave your all to it only? Um to find yourself questioning um, the revelation, the dream, the belief. We see these wise men traveled all this way, followed the supernatural um, star and sign, and it led them to this little town into a stable. What do you do when you follow a star and you end up in a stable. What do you do? I mean, what do you do, Pastor Bruss? I mean, this has never happened to me. 
uh, it only happened to the wise men. Again, they didn't go to a stable. They went to the house. Uh, but nonetheless, I mean, what, what do you do? Well, if this is paradigmatic, what I do when I show up is whatever is there, I bow down and worship it and give it frankincense, gold, and myrrh, apparently. I mean, it, this is the only conclusion you could draw from what he's saying, but the, but this is certainly not the point of Matthew. No. The point of Matthew is that here is the Son of God. Who is not here just for the Jews, but is for all believers, for Gentiles as well. Right. And so this is, you know, indicative of somebody who, as we started out, who is not knowledgeable of just basic hermeneutics. You don't take, as I said earlier, descriptive texts and make them into prescription. You don't do that. This is not the way the Bible is to be taught. Totally true. And and what he's done is, you know, it's so interesting how he takes the star to the stable, right, and then shades it off. Dream, disappointment. We'll finally get to somebody, right? They followed a dream. You've believed something. Oh, sure. you, we'll finally get to somebody who could, if he asked for a raising of hands, they could say, yeah, I've done that. But this metaphorizes the history, and it makes it it makes it a cipher for talking about the psychological phenomenon of hopes dashed. And, of course, many, many people can relate to hopes dashed, but they can't relate to a supernatural-slash-scientific star in the sky leading them to the Christ child. That's correct. And and you know what's so interesting? You know, these guys, I mean, he's talking about the inerrant Word of God. and, and inherent. So inherent. Inherent. And the inherent Word of God. Um, what is so interesting to me is that this is a play, uh, what we're hearing here, this is a play out of the book of like Rudolf Bultmann and Paul Tillich, right, where God is the answer to, to human existential questions, right? What comes first? The human existential question, and God turns out to be the answer. And so then that you can see what this does to your reading of the scriptures and, and, and so on and so forth. It's ironic, isn't it, that this is the Bible-believing thing, and yet it is just shot through by this rationalistic, existentialistic, scripture-denying theology of Boltmann and Tillich. Do you leave? Do you get upset? Do you get angry? What do you do? All of us at some point in our life have, have followed our faith and ended up in a place that we didn't expect to be in. But I want to encourage you here today um, that when you find yourself in the most unexpected places, places you would have never arrived at on your own, but you got there in faith, you got there trusting God, you got there following, you know, the, the supernatural signs and wonders. You got there. What do you do? I want to give you three quick things, then we're going to worship. One, you got to look for God in there. Turn to your neighbor and say, you got to look for God in there. When you follow a star and you end up in a stable, the first thing you need to do is you need to look for God. When you find yourself in a place, right, where life is not meeting your expectation, I want to encourage you to look past your disappointment, 
Look past your unmet expectation. Look past everything that you thought you were going to see and experience. They thought they were going to be in a palace. They ended up in a stable. They were ready to dine and feast with kings, and they ended up eating and feasting, right, with donkeys and hay. It didn't smell good. It didn't feel good, right? There wasn't enough room, I'm sure, for them and their entourage. But you know what they decided to do? They decided, you know what, we've come too far We've trusted too long. We've believed and put too much of our faith in what we saw in this supernatural sign and wonder. What we're going to do is we're going to look. We're going to look for God in there. I want to encourage you, look for God. So this makes it sound like the cause of God's presence in Bethlehem was the fact that they looked for him. Isn't that an interesting thing? We're going to look for God, and voila, there he the, Look, there he is. There's the baby Jesus. Well, guess what? It's the other way around. The baby Jesus was there, and in spite of all of the possible disappointments that they're facing, there he is. Because that's how God chose to reveal him. It's amazing to me how this preacher, boy, he knows what is going on in the minds and the hearts of the Magi, doesn't he? Oh, he really does. It's, you know why he does? Why is that? Because he knows what's going on in the hearts and minds of millennials in Chicago. And so he's trying to form this uh, uh, bridge between Magi and millennial? Yeah, because they have many of the same concerns. Look for God in your pain. Look for God in your poverty. Look for God in your lack. Look for God in your frustration. Look for God in it, because I promise you, You'll find him if you'll seek him with all of your heart. Pastor Kearns, I, I just got to um, try to recall your last Sunday's sermon, right? And you were talking about those Christmas cards that uh, you would see when you were a teenager um, with the silhouette of the wise men, three of them, obviously, because there were obviously three. It's the wise men still seek him, right? The, so the card with the silhouette of the wise men, and then it says, wise men still seek him. And, and what was, please just tell everybody what your point was on Sunday. Well, yeah, I mean, I vividly recall receiving that uh, card in the mail. Uh, this is my parents' house. I was a teenager. And I thought, number one, that is so clever. I've never, like that card made it about you, it wasn't really about Jesus, and it wasn't really about the wise men. It was about you, and man, that blew my mind, but then it also affected my will to the point where I said, well, I want to I be a wise man. And I, go find him. I want to I find him. This is what I want to commit my life to, and did, and unfortunately didn't find him, yeah. even though I set out. To do so. Right. And where did you find Christ? Yeah, where I found him is where he always promised to be. Which is? At the font, at the altar, in his word, and in the pulpit. Perfect. Okay. Now, what is this guy saying? He's saying, go into your deep, dark moments, whatever that is, and go rummage around in those deep, dark moments and get looking, because you'll find God. But he's not going to tell the people where to find him. If you divorce him from where he actually is... From where you're in, like your pain. Correct. Though they are at opposite ends of the pole. Right. 
if you are in your pain with your baptism, with the sacrament of the altar, with God's word, then guess what? God's there. God's there. But if you are in your pain rummaging around there all by yourself, you're not going to find them. Correct. If you don't find them in his word and sacraments. Correct. See, and this was my problem growing up. I looked for him in all of the places that I thought he should be. And, and we're not talking about a life of of drugs and a life of promiscuous sex and um, uh, drinking. We're talking about teetotaling, moral. So you lived a pious, God-fearing life. Right. Looking for God in your prayer, in, in, in your quiet time. Your, your devotions. Prayer, yes. You were looking for God in, uh, not in your, your heart. heart, not your devotions, in your devotion, right? Your activity. And, and what you were doing for God. Right. And it took many, many years to realize he's not here. So then when you learn where he actually is, you become the guy who sells everything that he has in order to gain the pearl of great price. The conclusion of my sermon Sunday was, you don't have to seek him. Lutherans already know where he is. Correct. In his word and sacrament. Yeah. And, and that's what is going to lack in this, in this guy's sermon. And that's what we hope any evangelical listening to this podcast understands. Well, and we, I think what you've done is very, very uh, astute in that you have already said that he is going to point them. I mean, he's already doing it now. But ultimately, he's still going to point them somewhere else where God has not promised hmm. to be. Hmm. I want you to know that God is not playing hide and go seek. He has not, right? He has not given you the signs. He has not led you down the road. He has not brought you to where you are to leave you high and dry. But can you imagine what would have happened if they would have just seen, right, the manger? They would have just seen Jesus in that place and just thought this can't be what we came for. But you know what they decided to do? They decided to look for God in there. Look for God in there. Look for God in the stables of your life. Look for God in the unexpected places. I promise you, you will find him in there. Turn to somebody near you and just say, I'm going to look for God. I pray that we'd always be a church that looks for God and that, that seeks to find him. You know, God can be found anywhere. We were driving last night uh, on a road trip. We went um, into the deep suburbs in Jesus' name. We were way deep. We had our passports, you know, and um, we were looking for some gas, and we couldn't find it, and we just didn't know. Josh and Midori were with Ali and I and Malachi. We were lost, and we couldn't see any lights. It was dark. It was scary. Anyone else get scared out there in the suburbs in the dark? I mean, I just, you just never know what's going to happen. Those people out there, they're crazy, right? And, um, and so we're, in, we're deep in the suburbs, and we need gas. So we go into a gas station. I mean, we are in, like, I mean, we are way out there. I mean, they're selling DVDs at the gas station. Now, like, listen, let me tell you, when they're selling DVDs at the gas station, you are in the deep, deep suburbs uh, in, in Jesus name. And so we're there and I mean, they have full on restaurants at the gas station, right? This is not just a gas station. This is right. The, the place where you go in the town to hang out. I mean, they had all, they had a real restaurant in there. And, um, 
And so I was just standing there and I'm kind of frustrated because we're late. We're not where I want to be. I'm not right where I want to, and we're, I'm frustrated and I'm hungry and, you know, I'm, I'm really, you know, I'm really ready to, to, to keep on going. And I started to get frustrated at where I was and I really wanted to get to where we were going, but I just paused for a moment and I saw a young family uh, a single mom uh, and three or four of her kids and they were sitting there ordering for their whole family and you could tell they were ordering and then they were canceling food off of right their meal they were ordering and then they, they would ring it up and they'd say well no take off the small fry and then take off the drink and then they would recalculate it and and I just felt like the Lord say to me that you know what you need to buy this meal for them you need you need to buy this and and I, I was kind of I stuck over in line and I tried to get the guy's attention and he's like excuse me sir just wait one second I go no I need to see you right and he's like no sir I'm sorry um well I'll get to you in a minute I go no sir I really need to see you and um I had uh, like $40 cash in my hand and um finally I put my hand like over the counter like to try to show the cash he didn't get it you know he wasn't following finally I just said sir can you please come here they start looking at me and um, funny, the, the family in front of me, and I just said, sir, can you come here? And he comes over to me and goes, sir, I will be with you in one minute. I go, no, 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 I want to buy the meal of the, he goes, what, excuse me? And I just said, sir, I'm trying to discreetly, and he goes, sir, I told you I can't deal with you right now. I got to deal with the family. He goes back to ring them up. He goes back to ring them up, and I just got so frustrated, right? I threw the $40 cash. I just threw it at him. Now, the four-year-old girl, right, who's watching this whole thing before the guy could figure it out, goes to her mom and says, Mommy, this man is trying to buy our food, right? So she got it, like, right away. The guy behind the register didn't get it. So I end up, right, I end up doing... I end up doing, um, we end up finally, he goes, what is this? I said, just buy it, you know, and, he, and so we bought the food, and the mom turned and looked at me. You could just tell she was overwhelmed, and you could just tell she was a believer, and uh, she says, thank you so much. I said, don't thank me, thank Jesus. I said, our church is, uh, you know, doing some things right now. We're doing a Christmas list, and I said, this is you know, our way and our church's way of paying it forward. We just want to bless you. Jesus loves you. I mean, she started tearing up. Her whole family is so thankful. And, you know, here's what I found is that often places God is just trying to get us to where he is. And we may not feel like we're where we're supposed to be. But what I found is, is oftentimes he's the author and the finisher of our faith. And he leads us to places, right, where he is. But if we don't look for him, we're not going to find him there. Chances are he's in the Uber. He's on the train. He's in the delay. He is in the stable. He is in places that probably you wouldn't think he is. But we got to make up in our minds that on this journey, we're going to look for God in the most unexpected places. Turn to somebody else and say, I'm going to look for God in there. The second thing that these wise men did in closing today is they gave they gave God their very best. Everyone say gold, frankincense, myrrh. Gold is a gift that you give to royalty. Now realize this was worship. Everyone say worship. There's three ways, right, that we worship the Lord. One, 
way we worship him is by giving him the honor that he's worthy of as the king of kings and the lord of lords you know the bible says that every knee will bow every tongue will confess that jesus christ is lord whether you honor him or not i want to announce to you today he is lord he is king and he's not just king he's king of kings and when you find him you if you're wise will give him the worship that he's worthy of you will honor him we don't lift hands because it's 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 right a, a part of our you know charismatic or you know uh theology or methodology or ministry philosophy we lift hands because he asked us to lift holy hands to the lord in worship we we sing praises to him because he asks us to shout with the voice of triumph we clap hands not because it's popular but because he instructs us in his word i want to encourage you when you find god that you should give him all of the worship that he is worthy of to honor him as king and of lord i was so moved one of my heroes in the faith just recently he he's in the last stretch the last run of his race of faith and i heard this and i was so moved he wakes up every single morning out of his bed and the very first thing he does out of bed he doesn't even get to his feet he just rolls over onto his knees and he says lord king how can i serve you how can i worship you how can i honor you today that's the way i want to live my life when i find him and i see that he is present in my life in every season in every circumstance i want to always honor and acknowledge and give him the praise that he's worthy of whether you like the song or don't like the song whether you can hit the high note or you can't whether you believe right um you know in um you know the way that we do contemporary worship or not i believe that when you find god in your situation that you should honor him as king and kings right are clear about what they want he's told us what he wants that's why i lift my hand that's why i lift my voice that's why i clap that's why i worship because he's worthy of all the praise and all the honor as the king of kings and the lord of lords turn to someone near you and say he's my king they gave him gold which was a gift that was proper for a king secondly they gave him um they gave him frankincense frankincense was incense they honored him as it was it was an incense priest would often burn incense as they pray they honored him as the priest as our high priest how many of you are thankful that jesus is not just king but he's also our high priest and we have a high priest right that empathizes with us he understands because he's gone through every temptation he's gone through every test he's gone through every single thing that you or me will ever face or ever go through and guess what he's our advocate he prays you want to know what jesus is doing right now he's praying for you isn't that amazing i'm so thankful that you filled out a prairie card so we can pray for you but whether or not we ever pray for you or not jesus is at the right hand of the father and he's praying for you he's praying that you would realize you're the head and not the tail that you're above and not beneath 
that you are a victor and not a victim, that you are going to be able to do exceedingly abundantly above you ever thought or imagined. He's covering you with his precious blood. He's empowering you with his grace. He's talking to the Father today, and he's saying, I know they've had a rough week, but I know that you're going to get them through it. I'm praying for extra grace. I'm praying for extra favor. I'm praying for extra provision. Come on, why don't you just stand up and thank the Lord that he is your high priest. He's praying for you. Wow, I I did not know that this Muncie character has access to Jesus' prayer journal. <laughs> and that, that he is looking beside my name and seeing what Jesus is praying in that I am the head and not the tail. The victor and not the victim. Uh, this is, uh, we've heard this before, Pastor Kearns. I think it was from the Rev City Church. Uh, is that is that the one that we heard it in? I don't know, but no. this is a... But this it's a is, fascinating set of oppositions, isn't it? You take winner, loser, and... Uh, just line up your categories and and just go through the through the line and it's prosperity gospel. That's correct. And then you add in the building crescendo of the music and the guy who's been saying uh and uh and mm, all this time now he's now he's he's got a role and you can hear even the audience respond, you know, but he's told him to get up and start praising the fact that Jesus is our high priest. I don't think I can do much more of this. I I can't either. Well, <laughs> but I would say what he's going to do is he's going to say it is a law-based sermon because where you're supposed to find Jesus, and he's already tipped his hat to this, where you're supposed to find God is in worship. And I assume the people will be standing as he delivers his third point and uh, he will try to get this emotional response. He's already got it going, doesn't he? True. Yeah, it's yeah, not not yeah. terribly difficult from here on out. It's like a worship frenzy. So what do you think about the ignorance in the American evangelical church? Now, granted, this is a, you know, a small little spectrum from your charismatic to your uh, hip and trendy guys but but clearly, these guys are all, they're out to lunch. Right. They have no theological training. They have um, probably training by observation uh, in manipulating people. I mean, that, that's, I mean, if people can't hear how this sermon has gone and understand the psychological manipulation that's occurring, they're not very astute consumers, if you will. And I would also say, uh, how devoid of the teaching of Scripture is this, actually? And I have to go to this line of thought, well, and I, and I want to be wrong. I mean, I'm a firm believer that the church is the driver, the driver of culture. And maybe I'm not saying that correctly. The church is not affected by the culture. The church actually prescribes or dictates the culture. And as you have false teachers in the church like this— then you have to look out at the culture and wonder, why is the culture the way that it is? I would say, and I'm not saying I'm right, but I would look at it and say, you can draw a line directly to the church. And you see how the church has become 
i.e. the culture follows. I don't want to dispute your theory on on which drives which, uh, but certainly, right? This is the we, we live in a in a fandom culture. Is that what you're suggesting? Isn't this isn't this fandom in celebrity culture? Isn't this celebrity and in spectacle culture? Isn't this all spectacle? And this fandom passes for Orthodox Christianity. Somehow or other, it, yeah, it's some. I think I think it's. Um, I'm guessing that a lot of these kids who are at this church, these millennials uh, listening to this sermon, may have well grown up in a in a more kind of traditional uh, mainline church or something like that, right? Gone to the city, uh, and now they've uh, refound God, and this is just edgy enough or different enough, unorthodox enough um, for them uh, that uh, th- that it appeals. Right, so there's there's a there's an element of not being orthodox, but there's um, I'm sure that they think this is still, uh, and of course this is the fault of the main line uh, that that they gave them not enough discerning ears to hear uh, to hear this properly. But maybe it's worth uh, concluding with this. I I don't know. Uh, we mentioned it before. Second Timothy four. Three and following. The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own what passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Well, it's kind of always upsetting, especially after we've been reaching in this bag and pulling out these turd biscuits and <laughs> munching on them. <laughs> but Yeah, I got to go wash my uh, mouth right. out. <laughs> well, you do that, and uh, hopefully we'll uh, join together again with our listeners and um, listen to how evangelical Christianity continues to go off the rails. Until next time. You've been listening to the Plucked Chicken Podcast with your hosts, Pastors John Bruss and Devin Kern. To discover more, go to thepluckedchicken.com or stjohnlcmstopeka.org.